We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. History has clearly shown that Christ is required to overcome the natural tendency of powerful forces to destroy God-given rights, including the right to hear and speak His truth. Welcome to Biblical Citizen. Let's roll with your hosts, Brian and Kathleen Melanakis. Kathleen is an author and retired registered nurse, and her husband Brian is a former company president. Kathleen and Brian discuss current events from a biblical worldview, so we as believers can influence for good in our culture and in the public square. Here is Biblical Citizen. Let's roll. Hello, Biblical Citizens. Today we have with us an extraordinary person and leader. Last November of 2022, a young man named Dane White unseated the incumbent mayor of Escondido and was voted in as mayor. This man, our guest today, at age 33, became the youngest mayor of Escondido ever elected. There was an article in The Voice of San Diego telling some of his story, and I, I found it fascinating. As a teenager, he became homeless, a homeless person addicted to drugs. At an early age, I mean, I think he left home at, at age 15 or 16. And then bouncing around, he went uh, for about five years from the streets to a foster home to friends' couches to living behind a 7-Eleven. He finally you might say, hit emotional rock bottom and checked himself into a local rehab center here in North County, and his life went upwards from there. And now here he is, Mayor of Escondido, with the desire to tackle the problem of homelessness with the motivation and understanding of the problem that few others in positions of leadership have. And so he's also held other positions of leadership already, at his young age, he became the leader of a rehab program, and he's been on the board of Escondido's high schools. He's also married and the father of two children. So this is really amazing that he's been able to uh, accomplish so much in his short years. But uh, we are very glad to welcome you, and we're very honored to have you, Mayor White, today. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Well, so... As I said, I'm really fascinated by your story. You had, you apparently had a troubled youth. Uh, you were able to overcome it. So just tell us a little bit about your background and upbringing and how you left home and went to boarding school and, and then you left it. And just tell us, you know, some of your, um, some of the troubles you had or, some of the good parts, yeah. too. <laughs> you know, uh, there well, there's plenty of good to share. The bad, unfortunately, started as a, a youth. You know, I, I I always like to start this out with, I have I have great parents. Um, and they did what they thought was right at the time by sending me away when I was, I was 12 or 13. Um, you know, my parents ended up getting a divorce when I was, I think, 11. And shortly after that, I just, kind of lost my way somewhere along the line uh you know a darkness took over and i just i went a little crazy and started getting involved with drugs and alcohol when i was 12 um 
fighting a lot in school. And then, you know, second week of my sophomore year here at Escondido High School, I got suspended. And that was the last day I, I had in Escondido for a long time. Um, went to my mom's house for dinner, and my dad showed up. And then the police showed up and said, you are going to boarding school in Missouri, and you can either go with your dad or you can go with us. It's your decision. Uh, so a couple flights later with my dad, ended up in Stockton, Missouri. It's a very, very small town, middle of nowhere, and was in a boarding school, an independent fundamentalist Baptist boarding school. Um, they Essentially, you show up, and everything seems kind of hunky-dory, and they give you a tour, and it's all smiles. And then as soon as your parents leave, it is, it, it's hell, to be honest with you. It was hell. Um, they take away everything that you own and give you two pairs of jeans, two pairs of khakis, three collared shirts, and then a handful of regular T-shirts. And you work all day, every day, until they break your spirit, and you earn, quote-unquote, trust. Uh, once you've earned that trust, you can have your shoes back. Um, you get slightly more privileges, I guess. And then you're able to go to school. And essentially, most, most kids were in there until they graduated from school. And school, really, it's just a cubicle, very, very small, two and a half feet by two and a half feet cubicle. And you do these packets um, on your own. And they, they really didn't have any credentialed teachers or anything like that. You're kind of just teaching yourself as you go. And when you're not in school, you're working. And when I say working, really? what I really mean is you're, you're hauling rocks. Um, they dump a big pile of rocks outside and you just get in a single file line and pick them up and walk about a quarter mile and drop them and go back and get more. And you do that all day, every day. Oh, and wow. like I said, it was, that it was doesn't hell. sound you're, like school. <laughs> it sounds, you know, like, sounds like a little bit, a little bit bordering on a slave labor camp. Well, it, it really was. And you know, you weren't allowed to talk to any other students. If you got caught talking about anything, they assumed you were talking about running away or homosexual behavior, and both were grounds to restart the program. There was, there was, um, and there was no, no leniency on any of that. They were very strict, very abusive, and in fact, the federal government just shut them down three or four months ago. Really? So, you know, that abuse continued on much longer after I left, but for me, after a year and a half, I had enough. Um, I got my first visit home. Uh, went to Escondido for a day, then the family went on a vacation to Hawaii, and when I was there, I just made the decision not to go back to boarding school. And when we landed uh, in at LAX on the way home, I went through security and took a seat, and then I took off and successfully ran away. And to my knowledge, I think I'm the only successful runaway who ended up graduating from high school. Really? Well, that's Israel. So what kind of this... That set off that you know that that caused you to just have a lot of pain about that, um, and then and then you got how did you so so you ran away from boarding school, and and you did graduate from high school, but now you got addicted to the drugs <laughs> at at some point. Yes, and you know to answer your first question about my parents' divorce, I don't know. I I've, I've given that a lot of thought, and to be honest with you, I don't know what happened. I I don't know if it was their divorce. I you know, it must have been because there was no other trauma in my life. But in, it, like I said before, somewhere along the way, I, I lost myself and mm-hmm. darkness took over. And I was just on a path of destruction, no matter where I went, no matter who I was around. And, and that's just kind of what happened. And after boarding school, so I ran away. I was uh, 15 or 16 at the time. And uh, took off. I ended up hiding out at my sister's house in Valley Center. 
her her boyfriend at the time who owned a tattoo shop here in Escondido. Um, I actually got dropped off at the tattoo shop, and then he took me to his house where I stayed for a couple of months. And then I ended up connecting with my grandfather who picked me up from San Diego and took me to his house in Utah where I stayed for the rest of the summer. And when, when summer was nearing its end, we kind of realized, you know, can't run forever. I'm still relatively young and I need to finish high school. So we ended up calling my parents, letting them know where I was. And at that point they kind of just washed their hands of the situation and told my grandpa, he has your problem now. And so he took guardianship of me, put me in, in high school. And frankly, it wasn't long after that, that he kicked me out. Um, so that's, that's sort of where my homeless journey began was, 16 or 17 years old, senior in high school, and started out in this wooden shed on the side of a friend's house uh, in Penguich, Utah, with just enough of my act together to graduate high school. And then shortly after graduation, I got myself into some trouble, ended up in Juvenile Hall. And once my time was finished with Juvenile Hall, I was still a minor, so they couldn't release me. Nobody... You know, I'll never forget sitting in court at the end of my sentence, and they called my mom and said, you know, he's done. Do you want to pick him up? And she said no. They called my dad, and he said no. They called my grandpa. He said no. And they said, if you don't have anybody to come pick you up, you are now property of the state of Utah, and you're going to be placed in a foster home. So 17 years old, fresh out of juvenile hall, and got put in a foster home, um, which was actually a huge blessing. I, really? I'm still in contact with my foster parents. They were they were a very, very good um, family, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, took me in, made me one of their own. Even, you know, I don't think most people understand how hard it is for a 17-year-old boy who just got out of juvenile hall to actually be accepted into a foster home. There are very few people who will take someone like that in. And they did with arms wide open, and it was actually a great experience. For a year, I kept myself out of trouble and, and kind of crystal squeaky clean and and uh, hmm. just waited for my time to be up there. And once it was up, man, it's, it's interesting. When you remove structure from somebody's life, or in my case, I sort of removed it from myself. I exited the foster care system and immediately went back to drugs and alcohol. Um, got an apartment with an old friend. Lost that within six months. Lost my job. Homeless again. Going back and forth between Escondido and Cedar City, Utah for three years. Just Whenever I could scrape up the money to take a Greyhound, I'd go to one city and sort of milk any resource I could until I was out and then go back to the next city and same thing. And I repeated that cycle for several years. And that includes even here in Escondido. I tell everybody, you know, there's a 7-Eleven on the corner of Center City and Country Club. And that's where I slept several nights um, here in my own city until, you know, I got in trouble again. Uh, for for drinking, under-the-age drinking, when I was 20. Mm -hmm. And finally, this judge in Utah says, you know, I've seen you now half a dozen times, and you you need to go to rehab. It's time. And I I walked out of the courthouse and thought, you know, I could go to rehab or I could just leave the state of Utah and never come back. And I left, and I went back to Escondido. And I don't remember why at the time... My mom let me stay in her garage. She gave me a futon in her garage. Maybe it was just one last-ditch effort to sort of help her son, but I had an experience shortly after I moved into the garage. I, I went to a party. I ended up overdosing, and I, 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 I distinctly remember hearing this voice in my head that night. You are going to die. 
And it was it was it was life changing. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget how I felt. I'll never forget the fear I felt. And the very next day, I Googled, uh, you know, as City of Escondido rehabs, and I checked into the North County Inland Regional Recovery Center here in Escondido. Was that was that that's an incredible story? And it sounds like drugs had certainly played a very big role in a lot of the troubles that you'd had over a period of years. And you you said you went clean during the time you lived in the, you had the blessing of being in a foster home, but then you fell into it again. So when you checked yourself into rehab to get off the drugs, was that, was, how was that? Was that extremely difficult to get off the drugs or, or not so much? I mean, it sounds like you I don't know, did you just make a decision and that was it? Or tell us a little bit about getting off the drugs. You know, I I had two experiences. So when when I heard that voice, you know, you, you're you're going to die. You can't live like this much longer. Shortly after that, before I actually started the program, I had just cut done smoking a cigarette and I was sitting on my couch and I yawned. And when I like I, I breathed in and my lungs ached. They hurt. It was it was an incredible feeling, and I just remember thinking, you know, you're 20 years old, 21 years old, and your body is breaking down. And I sort of internally made the decision: this is what I'm going to do. And I'm not saying I was it, right then and there. I was sober, and that was that. I went into rehab. I I definitely messed up a few times, but the decision to point my life in a different trajectory was made at that time and when i checked in i i took it serious you know i i quit smoking cigarettes i quit drinking quit doing drugs i changed all changed my phone number lost all my friends i did everything that they told me to do Hmm. and like i said i didn't I, i wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination but it was the decision to point myself in a different direction well and and i would say that that was god speaking to you that was your conscience that you know, it it just seems like to me, and you can disagree, but but it seems like God's hand has been on you, and and we all we always stress that we're created in God's image, and what makes life is meaningful is to have a personal relationship with Jesus, and so it just seems like we've heard this before. You know, that voice inside that tells you, no, you're not, you're not, you know, going to die. I mean. If you keep going, how you're going to die? Yes, but your life is worth more than that. It's it can be meaningful, and so it seems like that is what happened. But um, there there well, are plans for you. Go ahead, Dane. Did you have something? I I was going to say to take that a step further. About three months into this six month program, I went home one day and told my mom, "Look, I I've done everything that they told me to do. I have I have one hundred percent obeyed this program, and." I am more miserable now than I was before I started because not only am I sober, but the, the, the means by which I would resolve some of that, you know, the drugs and the alcohol was no longer there. So I was just sober, miserable, bored. I had no friends. And I went home and told her, I'm done. I've given this a shot. I did everything that they told me to do. And I am more miserable now. And my mom, you know, sort of stood there and and told me, you're my son. I love you no matter what. You're an adult. You can make your own decisions. But before you make this decision, why don't you go say a prayer and be very specific about what you want out of life? Yeah. 
and that's what I did. I prayed, and it, it you know, the, hadn't prayed in years, but a prayer went something like this: you know, God, if you if you want me to succeed, I need three things. I want new friends. I want friends who will ride bikes with me, and I want a new girlfriend. I kid you not. Really? Before I finished my six month program, I was invited to a church where I met these friends who all rode bikes. They became my best friends. Really? They introduced me to the girl who is now my wife. Within three months, I had everything that I asked for to the team. Wow. That's, a, that's, that's an incredible faith story. Faith yes. story. And thanks so much for sharing And then your life that. went upwards from there. I mean, and so, yeah, it, it just went from, you know, from the depths to where you are now. So. And I would... Yeah. Dane, we're going to have to have you on another time because I'd love to continue your story because you went to <laughs> yeah. head of the school board and, and mayor. But rather than go into that, which I'd love to do another time, I want to take the balance of our time and talk about Escondido, now your mayor. You've said it as, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, your number one priority to make real inroads into the homelessness in issue. So... Let's start out with this and tell us about the current state of homelessness right now in July 2023 in Escondido. What What's going on right now? Yeah, we're in a terrible situation. So it's no secret homelessness is a huge problem here. And let me just say real quick, I want to I want to uh, clear something up. Recently, the point in time count revealed, I think, a 67 or 68 percent increase in homelessness in Escondido over the last year. And that's not entirely accurate because the count this year was done differently, and it included Caltrans. So Caltrans counted all the people on the side of the freeway, under the freeway, along the creek, and it added a substantial amount of homeless people to our count. I'm not disputing the final number. I'm just saying most of these people have already been here. I'm sure we saw a slight increase, but not a 67% increase. But now that it's here, what are we doing about it? So one of the first things I did when I got here was I started the homeless subcommittee. I serve on that committee with the deputy mayor, Joe Garcia. And the plan was to have one or two meetings behind closed doors, kind of get our bearings and see which direction we want to head. And then we'd open up to the public and get, get some public input, some feedback. And what ended up happening was we had a meeting and within 15 minutes, it became crystal clear. There has been no direction given to staff for this topic ever. We don't have any policies. We don't have any plan. There has been nothing done about this forever. It's, it's never been addressed. Staff have been kind, kind of trying to piece this together on their own, but that's not how it should work, right? The council sets the vision. The city, city manager implements that vision through staff, and that's what we're working on now. Uh, in the meantime, myself and Joe have been on this tour of safe parking lots, different shelters, pallet housing, things like that in other cities and even in other counties as far as Huntington Beach to see what's working and what's not working. Because the biggest problem we have in this city is we have homeless service providers, and they do great work. But because those service providers are here, other cities say, well, the shelter is in Escondido, so I'm just going to send you to Escondido, even if there are no open beds. Uh, and that's why you see this continual increase every year. But when we went to Huntington Beach, really? their, their setup was significantly different. So they had a 175-bed shelter sitting on two and a half acres about two and a half million dollars a year there's it's low barrier there's no expectation to be sober you get in uh you get a bed you get some storage a shower clothes meals but it's financed by the city of huntington beach itself and what that does is it allows them to say other cities 
you cannot send anybody here because we won't help you. You take care of your problem, and we'll take care of the ones we have here. So you're not getting that that import from the other cities, and they set the rules very very clearly. Uh, you're not allowed to leave on foot. If you want to go somewhere, they have shuttles that'll take you virtually anywhere. You're given a shower and clean clothes, so when you are out, you don't look homeless. Um, and when we got that, there, that all that, sounds really good. That is fascinating. But but my only concern, or at least a question, is. If they don't have any requirements as far as uh, being in a drug treatment program, can can the people that are staying there, can they still continue to consume drugs and stuff? Is that an issue? So this low barrier, high barrier argument that we're having in society is completely valid. Um, you know, I myself, I'm a product of low barrier services. Um, Which means you, you don't think, have to get off would, the drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You yeah. would think that it would just be a drug den. But I'm telling you, what I saw there was quiet, clean. They have they have what's called amnesty bins. And let me let me preface this with I'm not saying I endorse all of this, right? This is just what I saw. Yep, sure. They have amnesty bins. So the police department is the only person who can do an intake and bring somebody there. So they're going to search them for drugs or paraphernalia. And when you get there, they have amnesty bins. Look, we don't want your drugs inside. Put them in these bins, and while you're here, you got to behave, period. And it seemed to work. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So it's, it's not something that we can ignore. That is for sure. But what it seems to do in the immediate is it resolves that aesthetic of homelessness throughout their city. Now, I, I happen to agree. If, you're, if we're going to invest in services for you, you need to do what you need to do to get sober and become a productive member of society. But right now, the county and the state aren't offering us any more services. In fact, the one I went to in Escondido is now a 7-Eleven. So hmm. I would love to force people into a program, but those programs don't exist. And in fact, on top of that, I know you all are well aware of what the county of San Diego is trying to do to our city. Instead of offering treatment their idea of a resolution is to bring a van uh with five hundred thousand needles crack pipes meth pipes uh narcan condoms lube and they're going to go around and deliver these items to the homeless in escondido because that's that's the real solution that we're all looking for and that was what we really protested at at the city council meeting the so-called harm reduction program that's Money coming from outside in these services that we have no say over, right? And then just enabling drug users in their habits, giving them you know, crack pipes. I mean, we 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 heard about that, and we rallied people at our church, and we went down and spoke. <laughs> and Dane, you and, gave uh, yeah. you gave a very uh, eloquent speech at that same meeting, and you saw that I think from the people that were emailing in too, the overwhelming opposition of the people in Escondido to this so-called harm, really harmful uh, expansion program. But anyway, do you think we have a shot at um, blocking this? Because it seems like the county is just trying to force it down. And by the way, folks, our listeners are throughout the county. This is not just Escondido, this so-called harm reduction program. They're talking Oceanside, Chula Vista, at least a couple locations in the city of San Diego, I noticed uh, La Jolla wasn't on there, or Del Mar. Somehow they seemed to dodge that. But do you think we have a chance of blocking it? I do think that there's a chance to get them to reconsider. And my the, the strategy or the approach I'm taking is, is, 
is multifaceted. Number one, the city of Escondido at large opposes this. Um, yeah. For the and and what's funny is for the people who say, yeah, this is a great idea, and the studies show that this really does reduce the harm associated with with injectable drugs. What they fail to realize is those studies that they are touting often include a very very small uh, controlled setting of homeless people, and are in conjunction with other services or safe injection sites that include medically assisted treatment or other things, not just a delivery service. That I mean, this is asinine. But number two, if they're going to do this, they like you said, they're, they're considering Escondido and Oceanside. Well, why do we need two locations in North County, especially when North County has the Sprinter? And if you're a transient, you can often ride public transportation for free. So you can you can easily access this stuff. And I know a lot of people are concerned about the Narcan, but Escondido already has a, a distribution network for Narcan. So that's already settled here. And uh, I think that's one of the main problems that you have outlined is that we don't want people to come to be attracted to Escondido just because there's free services for, for being staying on your drugs. And, and your idea of having each community fund their own homeless programs and so then they are accountable to the people of that community is a very good one. Yeah. You know, and the biggest thing that drives me nuts about this harm reduction program is they're going to put it at the Livewell Center in Escondido. That's, that's going to be home base. Yep. Well, as, as you perhaps can hear by the music starting yeah. to play, we've reached the <laughs> end of an excellent yeah. interview. We wish you, you, we will continue to see you uh, at many events, I'm sure, Mayor White, but thanks so much for taking your time today. It's been, been really wonderful. Thanks for having me. The time went by too fast. It did. <laughs> yeah. It did. To bless yeah. your neighbor listeners, pray for Mayor White in his efforts to help with homelessness in Escondido, but this is potentially a model for the whole San Diego County. And we didn't get to go into some of the things we wanted to today, but we'll continue to work, uh, talk to people about this, think about what you can do to help others, including reaching them with the gospel. Till next week. Join us next Saturday at noon for Biblical Citizen. Let's roll. Your hosts, Brian and Kathleen Melanakis, seek to educate and activate Christians at a grassroots level, helping them to live out their responsibility to influence civic affairs for good. Next week, we will cover another major news happening from the view of the biblical citizen.